Welcome to Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Stories We Don't Tell is a monthly event in Toronto that features candid stories of strength and resilience. I threw out my prayers, they went flying like balloons. The air whipped our hair, we went shooting down the valley. Knuckles gripped upon the handles, shivers rushing down my spine. What's the blood? We are going to hear a story from Sarah Flanagan. Before we play that story, we just want to talk a little bit about writing and the writing process. And so we do, as as you know, we do the two brunches. We do like workshops leading up to the event. And Sarah came in that first time, first workshop with uh, an already written uh, essay like piece. Yeah, she had an essay. Mm-hmm. She was like, "Hello." I have taken some time to write out my feelings about this issue, and it was just, it was fantastic. It was an essay. Mm-hmm. So then the, the trick is taking that and making it into uh, that you're not necessarily just getting up and, and then reading that essay of, of then you're in front of people, and how do you take that essay and make it? So it has a through line. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit in the episode with Wafa. So one of the things when you talk about like a family relationship or something that you're just kind of going through and this is i think what essays do really well is they let you explore a feeling or a state of being and stories as we know them aren't very well set up for that like stories you know we all kind of know that story arc that we learn in middle school elementary school maybe where you like build up to the climax and then there's a resolution and that's it like that and that's Mm -hmm. not how life happens and And it's about like one thing basically it's about one thing but it's about one thing that happened Mm -hmm. like there are only two stories like a stranger comes to town or a man goes on a journey, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a thing that people say. Mm-hmm. And this isn't about either of those. This isn't about like a person coming in and disrupting your life or you disrupting your own life. This mm-hmm. is about just like going through something. Mm-hmm. Part of it for, for, for Sarah, it seemed that that was a good approach to like uh, put it down in an essay type of thing. And then she did a lot of work of, trying to find, like you said, that through line uh, and making kind of a story mm-hmm. out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the the tricks to that, so Sarah came to both branches and she also came to our essay group, actually. She mm-hmm. was really committed to, to kind of finding a balance. One of the tricks to that is to cut down the analysis. Like when we write essays, anybody, when anybody writes an essay in the world, I'm going to assume, there is a lot of reflection involved. And we have talked about that on and off i'm sure that like cut the ending cut the intro the parts that are a part of a traditional like high school essay but really when you're up there like stick with the stick with the action Mm -hmm. so when there isn't one climax that you're building towards what you can do is you can take people through moments and you can craft a story that's basically just a bunch of vignettes and what those vignettes will do is they will also build towards something Mm -hmm. and then you can let the audience draw their own conclusions you don't have to draw them for them yeah, and it's a, it can be tough sometimes because I think we've talked about this before where there's there might be something in there that is say very important to you or you it's it is important to you and to your story and the story you want to tell but also then I don't want to say it's not important to the audience but to that particular moment when you're telling that story it's maybe just information that they don't don't need to know in a way so it's it's tough cuz you you can't be precious with some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's a constant lesson. Yeah. Something happened yesterday, actually. I was Whoa. trying to write a different story. 
uh, and I was really struggling uh, in part because I got to this point where I kept writing and I couldn't I couldn't t- figure out what to write because nothing I wanted to write felt like the story. Nothing I, I, I know I, I could describe the, what was happening. I, I could describe things, but nothing was moving forward. Nothing was happening. I, like I could describe, 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 but I wasn't getting a story out. Uh, and the friend I was with just gave me like, well, what's the story? Like, what's actually a story? And kept like, prodding me, prodding me, prodding me, until at some point I was like, well, it's about this, and it's about this, and it was, and then eventually I was like, no, it's like, it's about this. Uh, like, you know, the, for me it was, it's about me personally having this experience with this other person, and like, I, like, I sort of got it out. And what became clear was that the problem I was having was I wasn't accepting that my emotions were a story. I wasn't accepting that my reaction to this experience or like this emotional tension between me and this other person was enough to be a story. So I kept looking outside of that just interplay and and my anxiety um, to look for this more action-based part of the story. But like in reality, the the inner the inner part of me was the part that was creating that was driving the story forward. And mm-hmm. without it, it was just you know then it was I was having a boring conversation and that was all was happening. Um, and so like, I think, I think what happens here at some extent as well is that in reality, the, the, the plot doesn't have to come from outside influences or action. The plot can come from within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, yeah. and I think, I think that's what a, what writing it, that, that's in an essay that's often sort of where you're trying to get to Yeah. It, because often the essay type stories, uh, are, are emotion based stories. Right. Uh, and so, and so that becomes this, this, how can I convey this emotion and how can I make my emotion the plot? And with that, we have a story from Sarah Flanagan. He looks so different now, but I would never tell him that. It would hurt his feelings. The chemo was a year and a half ago, but he's never looked the same as he did before it happened. They say that things change after chemo, physical things that seem permanent, but in reality aren't, like hair going from curly to straight. My dad's hair is completely white now and has mostly grown back. I haven't touched it, but it looks downy soft and like each individual hair has a tenuous grip on his scalp, like dandelion fluff just before you blow on it and make a wish. His eyebrows never got the invitation to the party though. They just never came back. Maybe there's still time for that. Maybe it happens in stages. For a long time, he claimed that his eyelashes hadn't grown back. He was strangely proud of this fact, like a soldier showing the neighborhood kids where his thumb used to be. I finally had to tell him that, in fact, he did have eyelashes. (laughs) Uh, Hair aside, oh, I started to wonder what he saw when he looked in the mirror. Hair aside, the most startling change, and not for the better, is his coloring. His face has taken on a permanent ashen complexion. With the white hair and the no eyebrows, he started to look like a marble statue or a ghost. I wish I could escape the image. At dinner, when he asks me to pass the water, usually just as I'm taking my first bite, uh, unbidden, my brain loves a synaptic softball at the part of my brain that deals in facial recognition, telling me, this is not your father, but it is another part of my brain fires back. Cancer is not how it appears in the movies. Yes, this may be obvious, but it bears talking about. Here's the plot of Cancer, the movie. The main character, usually played by Susan Sarandon, Julia Roberts, or Dame Judi Dench, is told they have cancer. They then get chemotherapy and either A, recover, or B, die. 
Both options don't take very long in the compressed, even in the compressed time span of a movie. Here's what happens in Cancer, My Real Life. My dad is told, my dad is told the pain he's been experiencing in his hip the past few months is actually advanced prostate cancer, that it is in his bones, and that he has a tumor on his spine. He is treated right away with intense drugs and radiation therapy. We then enter the wild and woolly world of cancer management. Cancer management involves the monitoring and treatment of the cancer as needed until there are no treatments left that work. This can be months or it can be years, but eventually the cancer will outsmart any treatment it faces. Even chemotherapy, which is akin to having acid, slowly dripped into your bloodstream. My dad will never be in remission, as I warily had to explain to so many friends after I told them the news. My dad will always have cancer, and it will most likely kill him. The thing they don't show you in movies is that people live with cancer. Most people live with cancer. My dad is a poet. His writing is compact and abstract. I don't usually understand his poems, but when I've heard him at a reading, his words have moved me in ways I can't put into words. Sometimes they make me feel like I'm falling down the stairs, or sliding down a really tall slide, or eating the best meal of my life while watching old episodes of SCTV. Because he's a writer, and more specifically, because he's a poet, he very much inhabits his inner world. He thinks and feels and expresses constantly. This happens in his writing, which he does near daily, mostly in the middle of the night or as the morning birds chirp. Or it happens when I phone him and open with the banal question, how are you, warranting a 15-minute detailed analysis of how much sleep he got, if he's achy, what he ate for breakfast, if he has to take the recycling out, where my mother is, if he has an upcoming doctor's appointment, if he's worried about it, and do I think he looks okay, and he's feeling pretty good, so he's hoping for the best. For him, it's all interconnected, the inner and the outer. The ache in his shoulder and the recycling bins are both part of the bigger picture. Who is winning right now, the cancer or him? I know it's good that he talks about his fears, but sometimes I don't want to hear them. I want to pretend, just some of the time, that he isn't sick. These thoughts lead me into a guilt spiral that I know so well I can trace its shape with my eyes closed. So I listen, and I always ask again the next time I call. In the movies, the emotional arc of the main character and his or her family and friends fits cleanly like a toy where the cube goes into the cube-shaped hole. There is shock when they hear the news. Then they move on to supporting the cancer-ridden family member. And then there is grief as they pass away after, of course, reconciling all their family issues. <laughs> The last stage can also be replaced with celebration and a renewed sense of life's fleeting forces. They learn about themselves in between. They make amends. The circle of life, dear Simba. <laughs> but how do you manage your own life while your father's cancer is being managed? Life keeps happening. Living in the space of ambiguity, of not knowing when things will change, when a cold is just a cold or when a cold is a reason to worry, is hard. I feel the sharp undercurrent of inevitability flow through everything. Nothing is the same, but everything continues to be mundane. The summer my dad was doing chemo, we had hatched a plan to go to Paris. All of us, my parents, my brother and I, the following spring. My dad had visions of showing my brother and I the city that he loved. And believe it or not, we actually did it. We went the following spring, minus my brother for scheduling reasons. 
but it was not the vision that my father had of us strolling in the early spring blooms, showing me his favorite neighborhoods and cafes and bookstores. He was deeply unhappy there. Paris was too loud, and he had already seen all the tourist attractions I wanted to see. He would stay in the apartment alone while my mother and I went to the Louvre because he was too afraid to venture out by himself. When we convinced him to come with us to the Musée de Cluny to see the lady in the unicorn tapestries, he walked a few feet behind my mother and I the entire time and sighed loudly like a petulant child not getting his usual level of attention. Eventually, I angrily turned to him and told him he was ruining my experience and if he was having such a terrible time, he should just go wait outside, which is what he did. There were too many tourists and too many motorcycles. He felt worn out and I felt angry. Angry with him for ruining the few short days I had in Paris. Frustration and annoyance coursed through my blood like a pathogen, infecting every system in my body until I became very sick. Sick of it, sick of his behavior, sick of him. Yes, I was an enfant terrible to my father on his make-a-wish cancer trip. <laughs> About two years into my father's cancer management, I became fixated on the need to have a baby, or rather, to give my dad a grandchild. There's a pretty big difference. <laughs> I hadn't really experienced the ticking of my biological clock up until that moment, and some may argue that it wasn't really my biological clock ticking, it was something else. I knew that a grandchild would bring my father so much joy that I would start crying just visualizing it. In a very deep way, babies give us reasons to live. Obviously, had I had a baby, and with whom exactly, my imaginary boyfriend Bradbert, <laughs> it wouldn't have solved anything. I had to remind myself that babies don't cure cancer. In the movies, when Susan Sarandon or Dame Judi Dench dies, I watch as their families go through the grieving process. I see the funeral, the tears, the drinking, the casseroles piling up in the fridge, or egg salad if you're Jewish. As the viewer, the grieving process is a ritual I'm familiar with. I may not know how long it will take, but I do know that eventually there will be a point where the pain lessens, a point of forgetting, a point of moving on. But with this, this cancer management, there is no real moving on. I want it to stop, but at the same time I don't because I already know how my movie ends but I guess that's true for all of us. I don't know how to end this because there is no real end yet. It remains to be determined. I am happy to say, <laughs> I am happy to say that my father's cancer has been managed for the past four and a half years. I am so grateful for every moment I have with him. I'm so grateful that he is open and loving. I'm still learning how to deal with the fear I feel all the time, but I'm trying every day. I'm managing. I'm Brianne. You can follow me on Twitter at Venice B. I'm Paul. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey Paul Dore. And I'm Stefan. You can follow me on Twitter on at, 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 at Stayho underscore. Thanks to Rayana for the theme music to this podcast. 
You can find out more about her in the show notes or at rayanna.ca.